0: Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, I am Siobhan Gorman. I'm a director with the Brunswick Group. And uh, Jay was kind enough to invite me to moderate today's fascinating panel, um, which comes after a series of very sort of public and interesting breaches that I think we'll have uh, a lot to discuss here. Um, We are gonna take a look at uh, what the US should be doing, uh, if anything, in response to cyber attacks that are sort of short of a clear act of war, um, but are certainly enough to be sort of seen and felt and acknowledged. Um, There are a couple, just to set the stage, there have obviously been a couple major hacks that I think are going to be a focal point in the conversation. Um, The hack a couple months ago of OPM is now believed to have compromised the personnel records of more than 20 million current and former federal employees, including a lot of uh, background check information. So there are national security implications, sort of personal information implications. Uh, And while officials have quietly pointed fingers at China, the administration uh, has not done so. Some have suggested that maybe that has to do with the upcoming visit visit of uh, President Xi. Um, We have also seen, uh, fairly recently actually, in the last few weeks, uh, the hack of the Joint Chiefs of Staff email, uh, unclassified email, which came through via a spear phishing attack like many do. Uh, It affected 4,000 military personnel um, and it forced the Pentagon to take down the email system for a bit in order to try to fix it. Uh, and officials believe Russia's behind it, although that hasn't been uh, sort of publicly acknowledged by anyone in the government at this point. Um, we have seen a growing interest in the administration in responding to cyber espionage and um, some of these kind of small-scale but significant cyber attacks, uh, and that's developed over the last several years, really. Um, the administration has, has primarily focused, I think, on China, um, although, only getting specific in a few cases. I think a lot of people were pretty surprised uh, when they were so quick to name North Korea uh, in the Sony hack late last year. Um, And Russia has been named sort of broadly as a perpetrator, but not in specific incidents. Um, Interestingly enough, Iran has not Really been mentioned at all, although um, people who have tracked the the DDoS attacks on banks that were happening quite heavily some years ago, all um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly name Iran. Um, and today we'll take a look at what the U.S. response has produced so far. Uh, and whether or not it should be adjusted to perhaps have um, a stronger effect. To discuss that today, we have a very distinguished panel, uh, Catherine Lotrianti, who is director of the Institute for Law, Science, and Global Security at Georgetown University, where she teaches national security intelligence and cybersecurity issues uh, and hosts one of the hottest cybersecurity conferences uh, around. Uh, Rob Kanaki, who is the Whitney Shepherdson uh, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations where he focuses on cyber conflict and internet governance. Uh, And until recently, he served as director for cybersecurity policy at the National Security Council. And last but certainly not least, uh, Jay Healy, who is senior fellow with the Cyber Statecraft Initiative here at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. He also wears uh, an officially academic hat at Columbia University, where he's a senior research scholar at the School for International and Public Affairs. Uh, So with that, um, I thought we'd just sort of open with a few questions. Um, let's start with the OPM hack. At this point, what's your sense of what it suggests about the effectiveness thus far of the administration's sort of response, if you will, to cyber espionage? Um, is, it, is, is this name and shame approach working? Maybe we can start with Catherine and go down.
1: So um, in terms of, well, OPM is a good example to start with, and we can look at some of the other ones, but in terms of the cyber espionage, clearly, from my perspective, when you have the scale and scope of a, an intrusion with that many documents actually stolen and information, um, clearly we haven't, the US hasn't actually uh, made its um, position known strongly enough that this is something that the US feels strongly about and will protest these um, these actions. So right now I feel pretty comfortable in saying that we haven't um, deterred anyone in terms of that they're gonna continue Um, to at least assume that these types of actions under, you will, traditional espionage rules are acceptable um, by the U.S. and others um, until and when um, the U.S. actually takes a position in response to that um, to say otherwise.
0: Yeah, that's why I was wondering when you say maybe it hasn't, you know, maybe people haven't understood its position. I was wondering, you know, what
1: your sense is of, the the US position right now when it comes to responding well, to these I things. think then we speak that, you know, in my opinion, we should be troubled by this. The US should be Um, concerned about it. I don't think the U.S. government has actually stated a position, at least not um, to others. You know, talk to individuals and they're concerned about it. They're not happy about the extent um, of the information that was stolen, Uh, but the U.S. hasn't taken a a position. So it is not surprising um, if this behavior were to continue, meaning as an intelligence, a foreign intelligence service, Um, It signals that this is acceptable behavior, it's part of traditional statecraft um, with respect to espionage. Uh, No rules constrain them and until the U.S. actually protests formally um, and does what it there's a history of um, actually responding to such scale and scope that's not acceptable during the Cold War. The US actually did this a number of times, as well as other countries, when we went states went beyond what was accepted, even in the world of espionage. Um, but the US hasn't done that with respect to cyber. Um, I think they will eventually, at least that's my hope, sooner the better. But until then, there's certainly no uh, reason, I would say if I was a... Um, a part of a foreign or US intelligence service, there's no reason to constrain yourself.
0: Rob?
2: So I think it's interesting that actually, if you look back at the record, the US has put out a red line on this issue. Last April, Mm -hmm. when the president put forth a new executive order on sanctions, he listed three things that were a red line. Destructive cyber attacks. That was one. The second one was stealing intellectual property. That was the second. The third, most interestingly, was very carefully worded. And what it said was stealing personally identifiable information for private gain. So if stealing PII, like what was stolen from OPM, but for reselling it on the black market, that was the red line. And so it was about the PII, but it basically said, parenthetically, if you're stealing this information for traditional espionage purposes, it doesn't cross this red line, and it's not the kind of thing that we might use economic sanctions for. So in terms of the messaging, China may have gotten a message that said, okay, so Mm -hmm. Sony, bad, stealing data from Google, bad, kind of thing that we indicted the 5 PLA hackers for. Stealing data from OPM? Yeah, that's OK.
0: Is that the right message to send?
2: So the difficulty here is that we got to think about what limits we want to place on espionage in cyberspace in the context of what limits we want to place on ourselves. Right? We're in the post Snowden period where basically the whole world knows the US engages in this kind of activity, that we have a very strong program in this area. And we got through all those disclosures to this point without having a single ambassador kicked out of a foreign country, without Angela Merkel or anybody declaring that what we had done was an act of war. And so on that basis, you can start to understand the kind of comments that DNI Clappers made, where he said things like, you know, shame on us, not shame on China. Right? I'd go after this. If we could get it, we'd want it. So that's the norm that we've set up in cyberspace. The problem is, and I think we'll get into this a little later, is that you don't have those traditional limits on espionage that you had during the Cold War with human intelligence. During the Cold War, people went to jail. People were killed for engaging in spying. Mm-hmm. And by the way, there was a limit <clears throat> on how much information you could steal. Right? right now, you can get all the data out of the Library of Commerce, Congress, over the internet. Right. You can steal gigabytes upon gigabytes of information. If you go back and you look at the Cold War, Robert Hansen, who is one of the worst spies ever in United States history, he took maybe a couple megabytes worth of documents. But they were printed out, and they were smuggled, wrapped in plastic, and hidden in parks, where the KGB picked them up. That's a very different world than we live in now. So we don't really have a norm to constrain the kind of behavior we're seeing. Okay. Yeah, and
3: I love what's been pulled out here. The, um, you know, for example, the beyond acceptable of, of this, and you know, we kind of knew with the Soviets what was acceptable in the Cold War. You we know, had these Moscow rules, you know, and it wasn't a treaty, but it was this sense of where each side could go without feeling, and if, and if they overstepped that, then there might be repercussions. Uh, for example, I understood you know, like we would never kill a Russian, they would never kill an American, um, spy, but you know, East or West Germans, you know, that was kind of that was kind of the messy details if that got in there, um, and 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 they just developed over the years. It developed in, frankly, far fewer years than it's taken us to get through cyber espionage at this point, right? I mean, we've had cyber espionage cases going back to 1986, the Cuckoo egg, where the KGB was, was spying on stuff. So we've had plenty of enough time to get these rules. Um, what really struck me on the, as we've been seeing the response that's been talked about, and it especially came up in the the Sanger article, was not just we should do something about this or we should say what's acceptable, you saw the word punish. And boy, that was a real head-scratcher for me on punish, Um, because I was like, boy, all right, uh, some of us had our SF-86 material taken. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if that's why DC really got angry about this, like, all of a sudden it was our material that got (laughs) taken. And I was like, this is how the rest of the world felt after Snowden, right? This is how everybody else, that feeling that you violated right now, that's how everyone else feels after Snowden, um, of oh my god, look at what happened. Um, We're getting angry now of the Snowden espionage. Imagine how Angela Merkel felt, right? You know, that we say this is too far. A lot of countries were trying to say this was too far. Um, So, if we're thinking about this in the word punish, if you're thinking, if you are actually upset at the Chinese, if your emotions are involved and you are upset, then you've probably, there's probably some other lessons from the last couple of years to look at. Um, Now, you can say maybe they went too far, maybe we've got to figure out how to do this game, maybe we can. If they've gone too far, there are areas where we've maybe gone too far, and we can pull back. Um, and and absolutely um, on the punish, that's that's one of the things that really made us say we want to want to do this, um, jump in and do this event. Um, and especially, you know, to say, and what I loved about your beyond acceptable, um, it would be interesting if we could come up with this beyond acceptable. Um, India is now rolling out biometric to I think it's past 800 million citizens. If I were the CIA, if I was the Pakistani ISI, if I was China State Security, um, that's an obvious target that we have now said um, we might now be saying is legitimate. Um, And as much as we're doing biometric, I think there are two million fingerprints in in the OPM. Um, So if we want to pull back, we're running out of time. You know, every year. But There's another outrage, and it becomes tougher to pull back.
1: Yeah. Did you want to jump in? Yeah. So I think um, one of the area that you meant, both of you mentioned the the threshold of beyond acceptable is really what I think the U.S. government and as well as other governments have to start um, assessing in terms yeah. of the scale and scope of the cyber espionage, uh, as you pointed out, which is something different than we had in the human um, collection world. This the U.S. government would first have to decide, okay, where is that line for us, right? And it's not like you have to um, announce the exact line, and but yeah. you definitely have to have a determination as when we have kind of suffered too much, when we think mm-hmm. they've gone beyond what's been acceptable practice, even in the espionage tradecraft world. That's, that's happened um, before, I mean, in terms of um, what, you, what um, Robert said about the scale, yes, we haven't had that scale in the human um, uh, Cold War era, but the responses that were taken when a state indicated and protested on, on the scope of espionage, we can learn from that. And, and there, there was, actually, it's not a US case, so it's actually good to use a non-US um, successful responsive case in the Cold War, but the, in 1971, the the largest scale um, expulsion of hmm. um, foreign officials from one country at one time because of S- the scope and hmm. scale of their espion op- uh, espionage operations happened um, in Britain. The U.S. Um, in 71, the British government, um, and to date it's been the largest, uh, notified the the Soviets at the time, the USSR, uh, that they were going to um, expel 105 um, Soviet um, both intelligence officials and USSR's uh, trade uh, officials in the delegation. Um, about n- 90 were already in country, remember t- 10 or so or um, uh, 15 were outside of the country on home um, back at the USSR and they weren't going to be allowed to come back in. Why, why that's a good example. One, they were contending the British were had the same trouble that we are now um, in a situation where we have to be concerned with any threshold we set. Uh, anything we do, we might face retaliation. Right? They were facing the same thing, and in fact, it was worse in terms of what was going on. There were state visits planned, uh, as there is now with China. Uh, they also had the, the the feeling for most of the uh, states was that this was a spirit of detente, that we were cooling relations with the Soviet Union, and here what happened is the British found that, and about the scale, right? you can't go out with a USB, but they had there were about 500 at the time, uh, USSR um, officials in in London and, and in a few other places at their tra- in the trade guild. 200 of which were intelligence officers. So these people were in country and basically spying. So the British actually, um, through, throughout the 60s, the Soviet Union had built up a massive, at a massive scale, something that the British finally got fed up with. So they weren't doing anything but spying. Um, but the British protested, and the Soviets ignored them. And what they did is they actually pulled this oper- They called it Operation Foot. I don't know why they dubbed it that. And, in, and one day, and they didn't even notify the US they were doing it. Oh, wow. um, they, ex- they notified the, um, the ambassador um, that Moscow had in the United States. And they said, OK, this is what we're doing. We want um, them out. Um, no negotiation, which was one option. Now, the British officials struggled. There are now declassified records that show there were different people, different opinions. MI5 and SS, SS, SIS were actually the, the two elements of the government that pushed for this. So their intelligence mm-hmm. services played an important role in explaining to the politicians that we need to do this. And what we could learn about it is the way they did it, there were no um, acts of retaliation against London. What now? It's interesting facts that I can kind of go on later to talk about if you're interested as to why that was successful, but there there are things we could Mm. do. First, the government here has to decide, has this gone beyond? You know, I might think so, but it's important the government does, right? Is is the OPM something that's now gone, we can't accept this as normal statecraft espionage? If that's so, there are options on the table and not one that goes to war, right? You would not want to escalate it. Britain had the same concern they were concerned of escalating it. I think i mean, tit for tat and it was successful and we could learn a Little bit about how you do tradecraft.
3: I think it spoils our message, right? I mean we've been saying it's all about spying for commercial It's all about spying for commercial. It's all about spying for commercial And I think if this is where we do our big flourish, you know We just came out with the norms that Rob talked about and if we say if this is the flourish um,
0: Then it sends mixed
2: messages or yeah, it could be I mean I, I think there's a subtler norm that hasn't really gotten put on the table. And it's what we, and to an extent the Russians, accept out of the Cold War as this norm that you're really not supposed to get caught. Right? That that's really, really bad. Right? Obviously, in the Cold War, human intelligence, it's bad to get caught. Spies end up in jail. Spies can be killed. So we've sort of taken that, and we've taken that tradecraft into mm-hmm. cyberspace. And we've said, we're never going to get caught. Snowden accepted, but we're never going to get caught on somebody's computer. Right? We're really, really good, and we pride ourselves that's on that. And therefore, we're narrow, and we're specific, and we don't suck down information, and we wouldn't go after large databases like this, because we'd probably get caught taking gigabytes of information out. So that's our norm. Now, China says, well, that doesn't really matter. That may come out of your Cold War thinking, but we've moved beyond that. There's very little risk to us in doing this, So why not take as much information as we possibly can? And our answer back might be twofold. It might be to say, well, one, you keep getting caught, which means your information is less valuable than it would be if we didn't know you took it. All intelligence is about relative gains, and the relative value of information that we know you have taken is a lot less. But The second one is, you can't end up on the front of the Washington Post. If the New York Times is talking about you, that's going to force the United States to respond and get tough, and we're going into an election season. And I guarantee you, over the next 18 months, every presidential candidate is going to say that they need to forcibly respond to China over the OPM breach. I guarantee it. Mm -hmm. And so that sets up a diplomatic stage in the Nets administration, which is going to be very, very interesting. interesting. And I always thought, you know, I,
3: the President Xi never really had to care about espionage as an issue because he wasn't getting pressure from significant pressure from the U.S. Actually, probably not. Probably Hu Jintao, maybe more to, to put it in time frame, because he wasn't getting pressure from the U.S. to care about it. I remember even at Georgetown, it was like 2011, and we, as of 2011, we stopped going to the Chinese and saying, you know, we're we're having concerns about this, you know. In, my, in our history book of cyber conflict, you know, we have Chinese cases going back to the early 2000s. So like 10 years on, and it still wasn't um, part of the discussion. So I like what you lay out here. And so at least with the pressure from the US now, for example, if you've got the US in your system, you almost certainly only have NSA or CIA or, or one of the military spy services. Um, uh, because that's pretty well, it's, it's pretty well coordinated. Um, I started from the White House about 10 years ago. Greg Rattray put out a a document that said how we're going to coordinate um, 2003. And um, I think one of the things that affected the U.S. so much was if you had the Chinese in your system, you might have three, four, five, six different Chinese groups all doing different things at the same time when you talk to, actually I think it was probably at your event again, it it was with Eugene Kaspersky saying he's gone in and he'll see six or seven. And so that gives this perceived level of aggression. Um, It gives a sense that it's uncontrolled. Um, You may or may not like what the US is doing, but it's controlled, right? You've got a full line of chain of command. Um, You might not have liked what you learned in the Snowden documents, but there is a, those collectors were operating under requirement reviewed by the White House on what they're gonna collect, and there is a requirement. Um, We're not seeing that kind of control on the Chinese side, and that might be, I think, in line with what Rob's talking about.
1: Catherine, did you wanna weigh in? No, I mean, I've nothing that I disagree with. <laughs> okay.
3: it's fine. Um, All right, I got I to push farther then. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, yes, yeah.
1: it's, but but Rob Rob made an interesting
0: point where he said you know Aww. well spies you, the rule is you don't get caught and you don't do this because spies get thrown in jail. Well, w- part of the problem is we haven't seen. There's no corollary on the cyber side, right? Like you don't you're not getting thrown in jail and you're not facing sanctions. You're not. I mean. W- Is there an incentive system that would work better? Um, Do you base it on volume? I mean, it seems like if you base it on volume, then you're just incentivizing them to take smaller amounts of more valuable things. I don't know if that's the incentive system you're looking to set up, but.
2: (laughs) Well, I I mean, I think it it is interesting, right? We're much more upset about the opium data, and there are a lot of theories about how devastating and how terrible that could be, but we're much less upset about, the president's email being compromised, or the joint chief's being <laughs> yeah, yeah. compromised. In my view, or GitHub, or. Those two are really much more valuable. Yeah. That's what they're actually going after. That's what is intelligence value. Everything in the OPM is about secondary value to create further intelligence value, to create targeting opportunities, to do counterintelligence. But intelligence services, what they want to get is the president's email. It's not my social security number, which now they've got three or four times over. Right? So, Great.
1: so Here's where I may disagree a little bit, just to kind of mix it up. Yes. Um, <laughs> so from an intelligence um, collection standpoint, um, I am in the camp that the OPM hack has significant consequences for their intelligence operations and ours, negatively for us. Um, scale has always been significant in the intelligence world of statecraft, that the day you collect it, you may not actually know how you'll be using it. But that there is significant value in having that information. I mean, some people have already discussed this out in the press, but the fact that you now have information that people um, have disclosed on their SF-86 about their foreign contacts, um, you know that these people have clearances. Foreign, a foreign intelligence agency now has a list of possible people to recruit because they have clearances, and also foreign nationals of their own possibly that have been speaking to that American CIA officer. I I think it has significant potential value for any um, adversarial um, uh, intelligence service. And the scale is significant. And and in the Cold War, it was about scale and scope that we actually put red lines down on. It wasn't just Mm. that you got caught because, just the example I gave, because there's a lot publicly available of that case now. The, in fact, it was the buildup in the 60s that triggered the concern um, by the British intelligence services because they could not basically cover all those people in terms of surveillance. And, and they it was a national security issue. So it was lack of uh, capacity that drove yeah, it. Yeah, and, and also they were pretty ticked off at the USSR in terms, at the time, that was when they were pretty smug with respect to the UK. Um, and so it was a pride <laughs> issue. But it was certainly, and, and that's why the intelligence services were the ones pushing for the aggressive um, basically reprisal against them and the expulsion. Not some negotiated reduction of how many officers you're going to have in the country. They skipped over that, which has happened. No PNG PNG like one or two people, because we know when we PNG someone, they will PNG a couple of ours. And so the Brits said we're not doing that. It's going to be uh, the massive scale expulsion altogether, no time for them to delay. And then they actually put in mechanisms to actually minimize any retaliation, which actually worked. And we, we can do the same. And when you say it, not necessarily any response the U.S. does does not have to be in cyber. And it does not have to be an exact um, response. It can be, you can use other mechanisms, um, whether freezing assets, expelling people, prohibiting travel, um, you have to assess every case and every adversary and find out their weak spot, what is going to make them say uncle, and then you leverage that. But first you have to have a determination, bring your intelligence experts in and say, okay, um, how devastating was this hack? Right? What does that mean for our services down the road, potentially? And then if there's, enough, uh, if there's enough consensus that this is something that we cannot tolerate, then you need to say something formally, and then if it's not responded to, then you need to actually take action because left uncontested, um, right? What happens is you then build a precedent a con- you know, that this is acceptable. And you have no grounds to stand on the next time it happens. So it's the reverse. You're building a norm that goes in the opposite mm-hmm. direction of which you might want. But first, you must determine whether this is something of the gravity that you need to take a stand on. Mm-hmm. Some people have not been convinced of yeah. that yet.
2: I, mean, I, I just view of all the crimes that China has committed against us in cyberspace, this is the one that I'm sort of the least worried about. Right? What <laughs> concerns me is the theft of intellectual property. More than that, which didn't make the president's list, is efforts to suppress speech in the United States. We hold ourselves up as the protectors of internet freedom. We want to make our cyberspace available to dissidents in foreign countries so that they can host blogs, have websites, use email services. And we've seen China time and time again go after these groups, DDoSing websites of Chinese Christian groups, of the Falun Gong, of other groups that are dissidents. That, to me, crosses the line. That's where I think we have an obligation to protect those people in our cyberspace, and I'd like to see a very strong response on that.
1: So that is actually, in a nutshell, that's actually the disagreement that's fundamental that will dictate how you respond and what you pick and choose to go after. Now, I only um, take my position, so as a former intelligence person, I'm gonna prioritize our intelligence assets and values. So for me, I don't say crime is okay. Let them steal IP, but that—that's not going to mm. be my concern, right? But even in, you know, when Britain did this, they had everyone at the table. The trade people were there because they were losing intellectual property as well, even back in the '60s and '70s. And there was a different disagreement as what was more valuable. There was also concern that the USSR was um, repressing the dissidents in their country. And people said, well, why don't we put emphasis on that? right? Why don't we actually get them where it hurts by putting that out? We've talked about that in China's mm-hmm, case. Why don't we say that? I, that was all actually discussed. In that one case, and there are others that the U.S. was involved in, um, the the British decided, no, that's not what we're going to stake our case on. It's going to be the intelligence operations that we cannot stand any longer, that scope and scale. But so there's a disagreement, and they might all count, but one has to assess, I think you have to pick and choose, and you're right. An administration Mm -hmm. might choose that we're going for the crime. And that might mean we're at the WTO, which I've actually advocated yeah. mm-hmm. doing, um, but, or the human rights protections. But I'm just saying from an intelligence mm-hmm. perspective only. I, I would say you assess the damage done, potential damage. If it is critical, then you start assessing what threshold has that crossed, and do we want to respond to it?
2: Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to give the CIA a <laughs> lot of credit as an organization. They're very, very good at what they do. And so it's always struck me as a little far-fetched to think that data in this OPM unclassified database could be used for what people term exclusionary analysis to figure out who our CIA operatives are in China and therefore figure out what Chinese officials are working with them. That's the sort of worst case scenario. And I like to give the CIA enough credit to say, wait, they would have seen that vulnerability. No, that's not possible. If it is possible, I'm not sure that's shame on China. I'm not sure that's shame on OPM. I think that's kind of shame on CIA. I mean, they don't, the thing they care about most in the world is protecting sources and methods. And so the idea that they were relying on OPM, this little non-national security agency of the federal government to protect who their spies are, that seems a little ridiculous to me.
1: And if it's true. We might agree on that point. But that's like here or there because it's already done, right, um, in terms of whether that's appropriate and hopefully there'll be different mechanisms used for things like that. Um, but assuming that's the case, um, then there's, there's reason for grave concern. Right? And, and, but it is not just that one scenario. The, the amount of data um, and, and specifically what information people would have disclosed in even an SF-86, it is not just about protecting sources. It's a lot more now that they have, but that that would take a lot of digging and a lot of detail into some classified stuff, but let's just assume that's a possibility. Yes, I accept the fact that there's probably a better, safer way to do it um, in terms of backgrounds and presumably they would um, change it, Um, but that's... Kind that's, of already
3: done that. that's, why I, that's why I think it's a lot safer for all of us in the national security community to start putting in false information in your SF-86. <laughs> that way if the <laughs> Chinese take it, they won't know what's true and what's not true, so.
0: So, Catherine, do you actually, I mean, do you advocate some sort of stronger response for OPM?
1: Uh, for the US? Yeah, what, I, what would, what, what's so the let's, appropriate let's way to So So let's assume, like start with someone, the United States government believes that this is a, big concern, this one type of breach. And that um, attribution's not a concern, right? We know it. Uh, The scale, someone determines this is not acceptable. I do believe if you determine you cannot um, live with a continuation of these kinds of level of intrusive espionage operations, then absolutely you have to do something. What do you do? Um, Well, I would start with Thinking about uh, shy of uh, breaking off diplomatic relations, right? There are a lot of <laughs> things you can do, uh, not friendly things, um, but that would be considered legitimate in response, at least based on state practice in the past. And that's why I gave that example of Operation Foot because I think one, it was executed beautifully. They had the same concerns that we would have now for retaliation, right? They were concerned. So, do you that-
0: think that we should execute? It would be that the U.S. would do well to execute something like that in response for the... OCR, I think right? that
1: the president should be given a list by some smart people um, if he so determines that this is not something he can tolerate for national security purposes or just for the sake of stand, you know, standing up to another superpower and saying not acceptable behavior, right? So reputational reasons. He should be given a list and that list shouldn't just be of one option of what to do. What should the options be? Uh, I would start with kind of looking carefully at the people in your country and who you might want to kick out of your country. I would think of um, business ties that you might want to stop from happening. Um, In some cases, it's not just the government officials either. There could be other um, Chinese nationals here. Um, It ranges from sanctions to freezing assets. Um, I I would not escalate it. Right? But there's a lot that you can do below any kind of um, escalating it to a conflict. Um, but first, a formal protest. You, know, you need to first write a letter um, stating your concerns, demanding you know, that this stops, let it be known, and then see how it goes f- from there. The fact of the matter is, is a lot of these intrusions, what people have been complaining about is it's not stopping. Right? That it's going on, the U.S., some people in the U.S. seem concerned, but is the government concern. Are there official government people writing a letter or stating something clearly? Like a demarche or something like that? I mean, and I would, I would have a list and then have all the experts kind of red team every single option with looking at every option and the potential for retaliation and thinking carefully about how you minimize the possibility of Americans getting arrested, uh, of American officials getting kicked out. Um, they were able... In the past, we've been able to minimize retaliation, and we should think carefully about how we can do that with any of those options.
2: I think one thing to think about, we've done it effectively to a degree with the five PLA hackers we indicted. Right? Everybody was afraid doing this, there was gonna be retaliation, that NSA spies were gonna be named, that people were gonna be arrested in China, and we never saw that. So we've gotten what you might call escalation dominance in at least one case. And we might be able to construct it again, The problem with the idea of a demarche is what are you gonna say? What is it that you are gonna say that say this behavior is unacceptable? Okay, what is this behavior? Are we saying that going after personnel records of foreign governments is something the United States will not engage in, that other countries should not engage in it, that it is, for reasons you state,
1: beyond the pale? Yeah, I I would say, I wouldn't wouldn't say in any letter, we will not do this and leave it broadly. What is the we will not do? But I would specifically mention that these were documents, not just of any Im- average person, that these were sensitive personnel. So it wasn't just PII. Well, of course. This gonna... is information that's sensitive related to cl- people with clearances. But I would say the scale of it is what's not okay. acceptable. But so why I mean, are we
2: focusing on OPM and not the health care breaches? Because yeah, those were ordinary Americans. I mean, we signed up for this.
1: Yeah. When we
2: filled out our S.F. eighty sixes, we knew what we were doing.
1: Yeah. So I don't know if it's because. So I, maybe it. You know, I. I received a letter from Target. I received a letter from Home Depot. And I also received a letter from OPM. I have to tell you, the one that was I was most pissed off about was OPM. You know, as a person, but thinking about the um, the consequences of it, right? Yeah, of course. Um, as, as a an, intelligence, governmental things. So I can't say that I I wouldn't be writing a letter and saying all of this is off the table, right? I would treat each of the, like IP theft, that specific case about IP theft has to be treated in a different manner. And I've written pretty extensively on that. You know, the options for um, using your civil, uh, criminal uh, law enforcement, RICO statutes, the trade secret laws, going to the WTO. There are a number, I think, of really good uh, legal frameworks to use. But for the espionage, when it comes to, you know, just kind of pure espionage, not IP theft, but not the -the run-of-the-mill PII, then you're now in a world dealing with, this is state-to-state tradecraft on the rules of espionage. My sense, just my personal sense, is that this may be a line on the OPM is one example where we might want to start saying that this specific targeting at this scale is not acceptable.
3: So So. go in and take a couple records, but. I mean, I think it's tough for us because we've just gone so many years of, talent, of saying, don't hate the player, hate the game, right? This is just the way it is, and um, just deal with it. And if you're whining about what you found out Snowden, Snowden is doing, then you're just not paying attention. I've had to have so many of my colleagues, my former colleagues um, from intelligence, just say, who are these people that are getting upset by what NSA did? They just don't understand. And, and just really looking down and belittling the arguments that anybody could get upset Overside espionage because because um, again they just don't understand. And now to see this turned around, we've got to be really careful <laughs> in in the amount in, in how we're expressing expressing that outrage, especially because this isn't a closed game. And I want to get back to that second, but I see I see. Yeah, Simone no, no, no. I, but
0: but you're actually segueing into what I what I wanted to sort of bring us back yeah. to because both you and Rob have referenced Snowden, and I was wondering whether you have a sense of the sort of us calculation around what an appropriate response is has been affected by that because you know you're making the point that you are making anytime you are pushing back on these things you're making a statement implicitly anyway that well we don't think this is okay so we shouldn't be doing it either and i'm just wondering how the snowden revelations have affected the administration's thinking or should affect the us thinking
3: and if i can on one side the um I'm astounded at the scope of the foreign policy gaffe of the United States to have pushed the president so far out on the branch that at sunny lands, Mr. President, you have to bring this up with President Xi, that you are going to make the scope and scale of Chinese es- cyber espionage, cyber Chinese espionage, um, the central point, not civil rights, not commercial. I mean, well, we, had president after p-
0: the Snowden revelations.
3: we had President Obama say, Chinese espionage is the central thing that we have to get onto. And we did that to him knowing what we, the scope and scale of US operations. Um, To me, that is a stunning foreign policy gaffe that I can't believe more heads didn't roll um, in this country for. Um, Great, if we're going, we could have been much more balanced in our message, like we have started to get now. And we did it after we got caught and we could have done it before and not be called out to be seen, to be, to give the perception that we were liars or that we were trying to pull the wool over people's heads. So it's got to be affecting the White House now. But I will leave it to Rob to say what exactly is being discussed today at the National Security Council in the city. Sounds good. Rob?
2: I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: you, you must broadly have some. I mean, A, you, you referenced it I, earlier, so now you're on the side. Absolutely
2: everything that Catherine listed out is being done. Absolutely options are being crafted. Okay. Views on what the counter to those options would be are being crafted. And it's going to be the full range yeah. of capability from diplomatic to economic to military action probably confined just to cyberspace to intelligence action, right? How are you gonna deliver the message and what message do you wanna be delivered? How are you gonna get on top of this and cause China not to escalate, but to downscale what they're doing? And that's gonna be the goal. Unfortunately, there probably really aren't any great options, right? And by the way, the latest Snowden revelations on that giant sucking sound going from AT&T to NSA last week, doesn't really help the argument that scales the problem, right? We're pretty well involved in scale, if you believe what you read in the papers. So it's probably not great timing Um. (laughs) to have the sort of message that, oh, you know, we don't engage in this, and you shouldn't engage in this, and this is beyond the pale. I think the calculation we've made in a certain way is to say, We're better at this than everybody else. We're getting more value out of this than they are. And the relative gains for us are more than the relative losses. Is that true? I think that is the view of the intelligence community right now. And I think it probably is right. Until we say, hey, we actually want to have new norms where we say, okay, stop this, we'll do a no-spy agreement, right? We'll agree not to spy on these 30 countries. We're not going to do this in peacetime. We could put out declaratory policy that says, We will consider cyber spying on the United States an act of war. And if we catch you, it's not going to be the 10th Fleet. It's going to be the real fleet that's coming after you. We could do that. But right now, we judge that that's not in our interest. So we don't do that. And the reason is, we get a lot of value out of it.
0: I think you hurt the 10th Fleet's feelings.
3: Hi. Um, th- um, a couple of things. So, one, the right now, the Chinese leadership has put themselves into the position that we were in prior to Snowden. Um, I was in Singapore maybe three weeks ago having a discussion of the. It turned out into a debate about the U.S. side and the China side. And on the U.S. side, I'm saying, well, you know, we do this, we don't do this. Here's kind of how we do it. And my Chinese uh, counterpart. A um, uh, non-state, ultimate uh, academic, he, could, he would still say, well, China doesn't engage in this kind of behavior. And they're, put, they're putting themselves out on that ledge, uh, on that branch, to use the same metaphor I said, what we did. That, I think, gives us a huge opportunity to continue to call them out and, and get them in that position. It also makes, it, because they're in that position, they are vulnerable to the same kind of um, getting dragged through the mud that, that we did. Um, probably to a different scale, um, but two: if we can get them off of that position, even if we choose not to embarrass them in, in the process, um, it's it was easy to talk to the Russians about spying because both sides were saying, "Yeah, da, we spy," you know, um, and and we could have that conversation. It's really difficult to have these conversations with the Chinese where when they're in the well, we don't we don't engage in this, and so I think both for practical reasons as well as potential for advantage we can try to shift that. Two, Rob had brought up the um, the PLA. Um, I was always sure that after we indicted those PLA officials, we were going to follow up on the the unindicted co-conspirators listed in that indictment. Now, on this stage, last year, I learned from Dmitry Alperovitch that that's Baosteel, Chinalco, a few other really major Chinese companies that had paid the, the, the PLA to go and spy on their behalf. I would, you know, we can do things to say, good, let's, let's indict them and say those companies, you know, pull their visas, their kids aren't allowed to study at Harvard anymore, they're not, you know, their wives aren't allowed to go to Tokyo anymore to, um, uh, to shop with the families. I mean, there's a lot of things that you, can, that you can kind of clamp down that. We did that in other places, I think it can play here. Three, I think the United States can do a lot more to talk about the restraint that we do show. Um, the U.S. shows significant restraint in espionage operations. Um, for example, not using journalists. Um, you know, we do say there is restraint that, we're, that we will show. We don't care if others don't show the restraint. We're going to do it because of who we are. Um, and one, I think we could look for more, more restraint in cyber, opera, cyber espionage operations ourselves. I mean, there are restraints. But two, we can broadcast the ones that, that we, that we Um, that we do respect, in a way to show that there are some rules here. Here are some rules that we pull back on. PPD-28 was, I think, good on this. This was Obama's um, presidential directive on on espionage. No other country comes out and and talks about how they're going to do signals intelligence. Um, I think more like that, so that the world doesn't always just automatically assume the worst of us, um, uh, could particularly help.
0: Um, just before we open it to questions, I wanted to shift away to at least one other example. And you know, we were discussing earlier. Well, is there a difference in scale? So let's talk about a, a, a slightly different one. Let's talk about the Joint Chiefs email hack. With yeah. a, a sounds like probably a different perpetrator, uh, with probably a different purpose. Um, what, what if anything should be done about that?
2: The Joint Chiefs should secure their email systems better. I mean, they should know that that is a target and that's gonna happen. And I think DOD probably has some of the best defensive systems in the world, but they didn't keep up with the adversary. And so that that I put in the category of of shame on on us, right? Uh, Or maybe not shame on us, but acceptable losses. We can contain it, we can manage that problem. They didn't get into classified systems could shift most of your need for communications to systems that hadn't been breached. So I think all in all, it probably wasn't a devastating incident. And the good news, if there's good news here, is it sounds like they caught it pretty quickly, if you believe the news reports. So they didn't have a lot of dwell time in there, and so they weren't siphoning off information for years upon years. And if that's the case, the damage is really limited. So if we were gonna say what's acceptable Behavior in cyberspace for intelligence going after a target like that probably is something that we're not going to get too much
0: But are you saying if we weren't as good at catching it and they were in there for a year then we should go after them That's
2: right. Well, then it's a question. What are you relying on to protect your information systems? Are you relying on your declaratory policy or are you going to rely on technical controls and maybe it's a combination of both But the game that we've been playing in the United States, at least from a DOD perspective, is we've got to be able to protect these systems. We need to be able to fight even if they're compromised and that we're accepting that countries are going to target these systems. We probably don't want to have our only way to protect systems to be our declaratory policy. That would be a very, very dangerous world in which you know, somebody could break into an unprotected system and cause a war. I don't think anybody wants that. Maybe Catherine.
1: No, okay. I mean, I, I, that's why I was surprised before, though, Rob, when you, you mentioned, um, aside from, you didn't seem to think that OPM was such, such a devastating um, um, kind of harm, damage to the United States, but you put in the other category that you'd be more concerned with is the Joint Chief's emails as well as the human rights uh, censorship. I'm not, I'm not concerned about meaning the Joint Chief's emails, just secure emails. But in terms of a national position and response on that, no. And I think you're talking apples and oranges when you look at the OPM hack versus any of the other categories yeah. that Robert was talking about before. I, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, also, I'm siding
3: with, with something that Rob had said earlier, and I, I would just rather not get to, I, I personally don't get too wound up on, on any espionage. Um, uh, you know, I would like to take most, you know, 70, 80% of our effort when we're talking about what to do in response about disruptive attacks um, and, uh, and the save the rest for espionage. I'm, I'm, I'm especially worried about the disruptive, um, the tit for tat retaliation that we're now seeing for the past oh, five years where, where it's not just reading each other's emails, it's really stabbing the other guy under the table. Um, that, to me, is the stuff that really can drive us to the incredibly dangerous futures and, and internets that are far less safe than the, and, and reliable than the one we have now. Um, I'm, a lot of my own discussion, I'm starting to think the internet might, might be the most escalatory domain, the most escalatory regime that we've ever come across. Um, one of my colleagues at Columbia, Bob Jervis, Wrote in 1975, I think, that a situation is 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 particularly is doubly dangerous if if you can't distinguish offense from defense, and um, if it's offense dominant. And he said if you're in that, it's doubly dangerous because things are going to escalate much more quickly. Each side has an incentive to attack early, um, and ours cyberspace isn't just offense dominant, and it's difficult to. Just distinguish offense from defense, but you can't distinguish offense, defense, intel prep of the battlefield, or espionage in many cases, and it's got really low barriers to entry. That is easy for others to really get involved. So that means that we might be in this incredibly escalatory place. Um, and so I think, you know, again, that that considering this restraint coming out, um, you know, with um, acceptable behavior across these areas, as Catherine has talked about is incredibly important cuz this may be far more dangerous than anything that we've got history dealing with.
1: Yeah, so like the emails on joint chiefs that's not part of discussion on what's acceptable behavior. You know, you don't that's not what at least I'm talking about, but at OPM is a really good case of where you might want to think about what is acceptable behavior. And and the discussion is not between states, okay, we are going to agree not to spy anymore in cyber. No. It's about under certain circumstances, depending on what you're concerned about, which you have to articulate first, you say this is what we're saying we want to restrict. Not spying in traditional means or in cyber means. There, there won't be a day, I believe, that any state w- would ever agree to that. OK,
0: so to get to, to, to put you on the spot, just very quickly before we go to questions, can we go down the line and give me what, what your red line is, or what your example of a red line is that would require some sort of response, something that's clearly short of an act of war, but is still crossing a red line? Start
3: oh, with start me um, I would have, um, I think the Iranian DDoS atta- attacks on the bank, um, uh, the GitHub. Um, examples like that i really start i really start on the those? disruptive
0: what about those crosses align
3: um the but the disruption i mean that that's the common right I, we can look at different things across that um but whether disruption to attack free speech um disruption to to hit a civilian target not in a time of warfare um i think that's those those are areas where you really want to tamp down. Because um, we, we've now got this place between peace and war and every country has been pushing up cyber operations farther and farther and farther, closer to armed attack, closer to that, to that upper bound. So I care most about escalation control, about stability, and so I want to try and get the down acceptable on that disruptive stuff. Because we're never going to go to war over, over bad espionage where it's much less likely Um, It gets a lot more likely that that each side starts misguessing what the other side is up to when when you're in, um, uh, when you're disruptive attacks.
0: Rob?
2: i begin with stealing intellectual property from U.S. companies. I think that we put that down as a red line. We've set it and we're going to need to more forcefully respond to the next time something like that comes to light in a major way. And then I would add to it the freedom of speech issue, right? We've got to have protections for people in this country, foreign dissidents, US citizens, need to feel they can express themselves in cyberspace. It's a fundamental duty of the United States to protect their ability to speak online. And so I think we're gonna have to declare a red line on that and we're gonna have to respond the next time that happens.
3: And that's why I was glad the president spoke about Sony. Because to me, that's the, if, Sony would have released the movie, Obama wouldn't have spoken about it, I bet. Um, I wasn't in the sitting room at the time. But I'll bet if they released the movie, but when they didn't release the movie, this is a successful attack on American free speech by a dictatorial regime. Got a, all of a sudden, to me, that becomes a presidential issue because it's a, a successful external attack on free speech. Yeah, I agree with
1: that. So I certainly agree on the, the higher level spectrum, whether it's destruction or disruption. Um, But I probably then I guess I'm a little more open to thinking that um, even below that, there may be some um, specific cases um, or a level of espionage that there's room to discuss. The wide scale. Yeah. Yeah, and when I speak of responses, it's not, okay, we're gonna go to war over it, but it's let's discuss in very stern terms what we will accept and what we don't accept. I think we're at a time in the cyber domain because of what can be done that we, we, are, we are, it's time to kind of start thinking for certain countries, there may be room to um, protest and start discussing what those lines were. So I encompass yours and maybe yeah. a little more for the cyber. And,
3: and one that we didn't uh, mention, <laughs> I thought Rob was going to mention it because it was one of my favorite parts of his book that you wrote. And I, I think Dick Clark did a little bit about that, that one too, right? <laughs> but the, um, um, which was in thinking about getting in each side's, um, for example, electrical transmission distribution systems, um, you know, you've got these that aren't disruptive, but they c- might be really escalatory and unstable. But and, that's happened. That's been happening for a long time. Yeah. yeah. But it might, be, it might be on our, our list. Uh, Mike, Mike's coming around. Oh, I'm sorry, The Someone is bringing the microphone. She's
4: not named Mike. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Um, I'm Raj uh, Boya, an IT consultant. Um, I have two questions. Um, Given the fact that US was going after heads of state of friendly nations, uh, like Angela Merkel and uh, someone from Brazil, higher official, um, do you think it would be a laughing matter if US were to officially protest against what China did in the case of OPM espionage? Uh, My second question is, Given the massive trade between US and China, and also the debt we have and how much we owe to China, um, if something devastating were to happen uh, in terms of espionage, um, given the rules of this espionage game are murky. These are not like Olympic games or WTO rules kind of a thing. So, do you think U S. would really be able to do something because China has ambitions to expand its power and role in many parts of the world?
3: I see, I assume you said this was like Olympic games, and that was just an unintentional pun yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> i to the
0: take
2: further? that. Rob. So, I, I think in the context of cyber, you need to look at the relationship more broadly. So I get really upset, as I've said, about the economic espionage, as does Google, as does Intel, as do many companies that have been targeted, allegedly, by China. They also don't get so upset that they want to damage the market opportunity Mm -hmm. in China, right? So when you look at the companies that were willing to protest in the WTO and to be part of those indictments, it was five old-school companies from around Pittsburgh. It was Westinghouse. It was Alcoa. It was companies that were not competing in China at the time. It wasn't Google. It wasn't Intel, even though they made public previously that they'd been targeted by China. So you've got to look at US interests with China overall in the context of what we as Americans and American corporations want mm-hmm. out of our relationship with China. And so it gets to the top of the agenda as if to say to China, hey, you've really gotta knock this off because we don't want to destabilize our relationship in these other areas, on trade, on investment, on things like greenhouse gas emissions. We have this whole other agenda we wanna work with China on and so therefore, we probably don't wanna escalate too far in this domain and cause a problem in our relationship.
3: It strikes me so similar to, to incidents at sea, right? The Soviets and we, we didn't just agree on what was going to happen on Intel to some degree, but we also, we still have a commission that meets on, on incidents at sea. So right, if we have maritime incidents, you know, where our ships collide or come near to collide or the rest, we've got this way that it's going to meet every year and we know we're going to get together, we're going to talk about it and figure it out. And, and to me, we've, we're still working this through with China, right? China says, well, the old rules um, of uh, don't necessarily apply. We don't like those rules, um, both how it comes to, to, for example, sovereign claims of, of islands, or across whole, whole arts of areas of saying we don't like how that how that plays, um, and that's somewhat they're saying in, in commercial espionage. Like we don't we don't think those rules have to play to us. That's why I like this. The more that, and if we can use this upcoming visit by Xi Jinping. Um, to have the kind of conversation that Rob talked about. You know, like We don't want this to escalate, let's talk about some of these areas um, and why it's in your interest and our interest to, 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 to tone this down a bit.
1: I do think um, with respect to the economic espionage um, with IP theft that's happening in cyber, the WTO, Um, can be an effective mechanism in which to hold China accountable because China has a very important interest in being a well-recognized member of the WTO. They fought to get membership into there, they finally made it, they've signed up to the the covered agreements under the WTO. the U.S. trade representative can make cases getting, obviously they're gonna need cooperation from U.S. companies um, to bring any charges. If they can make a legal argument under the TRIPS agreement that the economic espionage and the theft of IP violates um, the TRIPS agreement, that's actually a really legitimate um, international organization where the U.S. has a really good shot at making a case against China and holding them accountable. Obviously, there'll be challenges on the legal interpretation of that TRIPS Agreement, and actually, it's Article 39, which is the you know the prohibition against um, undisclosed information, right? And that would be what would be relevant in a trade secrets theft case. But China is—it's very important to China to be seen as a state that's cooperating, abiding by its agreements in the wor- in the WTO, and so they, because they fought hard to get in, and they have a lot of economic benefits to being a member. So the US is thinking smartly and needs to think smartly about, uh, like we mentioned in the case about all espionage. When we are challenging China about a particular um, um, level of espionage that they're using, um, conducting, you do not have to then bring in a negotiation of all espionage all over the world. Meaning, traditionally, this has been done over and over. The U.S., the Soviet Union, key players have always um, always spied, but you are able to actually, if you're upset about a specific incident, um, you can actually get like bilateral agreement on norms without having to say, okay, well, yes, um, Snowden is relevant here. It's really not if you're talking about just China's activity and the U.S.'s vis a vis each other. So I think there's good luck on the there's some good work on the economic espionage. Still a long road, but I think some of the companies, though you mentioned, yeah, the named companies in the indictment, for all purposes, they were not the, the players that are in China um, suffering consequences now anyway, just because of U.S. action, Snowden revelations. But there was one, the, the solar energy company. They actually um, had already been at the WTO challenging China, and so they believed that their uh, the economic espionage against them was retaliation. So I think, and the U.S. trade representative is actually working and meeting with a lot of American companies right now, trying to get them to feel comfortable with sharing data of what they've lost so he and the um, U.S. can go to the WTO with that data, which is going to be necessary to make any case. So we have legitimate mechanisms um, that are based on international law that should be used by the U.S. um, to counter China or anyone else that would do it.
2: And to answer your first question, yeah, it makes it really, really, really hard, right? I mean, if you look at the situation that we're in on this issue, how do you articulate that it's okay to tap phones of foreign leaders, but it's not okay to take the OPM database? Where's that dividing line? That's really, really difficult to articulate. What we've done, post the Snowden revelations, when we talk about intelligence, is we say the thing that's really bad is the thing that we say we don't do. Economic espionage for the gain of our private sector champions. Right? We don't have private sector champions like China or Russia or France. Right? We can't pick between Juniper and Cisco. We must love all our children equally. So on that front, we don't do that. And we put out a norm that says, we don't do it, and you shouldn't do it either. How do you articulate that on something like spying on government agencies? It's, I think, probably impossible to do.
0: Well, and the US has had a hard enough time articulating that particular position, because China says, well, that's nice that you don't do yeah. that, but we're not structured that way. And that's why, right. are, why <laughs> are you imposing your, your views on, on us about what is good spying and what is bad spying? So.
1: But we're not the only ones that. Oh, we no, have, no. We no. have other, I mean, France, Japan, um, the UK, they are with us on that norm. So that's a good thing. We're not. Yes. Really? Yes. So I I was part of the track 1.5 in Paris, talking about economic. um, It was on economic espionage just last summer, and they it was hosted in Paris because they. And which was interesting, both Japan and France, because in the as we all know in the 90s they were on the U.S.'s list of the biggest offenders for economic espionage targeting us. Of course, that was not in cyber necessarily, but so they have but they see something very different. So it's not just us on that norm, and that's actually a good place to be. The more we can get other nations um, accompanying us at the WTO as well, but Mm -hmm. the US's um, plan is, is not to go in there alone and challenge China on this, but to get as many other nations who also have had their IP stolen from their companies together go in, and those are the most successful cases at the WTO.
5: Thank you, Uh, Randall Fort, formerly Head of Intelligence and Cyber Policy for the State Department. Rob, I just uh, quickly have to disagree about the import of OPM Um, the entire system upon which background and and security clearances in the United States of America is now fundamentally corrupt and untrustworthy. So the entire basis for how decisions are made about who has access to information, gone. That's very serious, first. Second, there's a counterintelligence nightmare for the next two biblical generations that U.S. intelligence will have to deal with. So it's as serious as a heart attack. My question would be, instead of complaining and trying to come up with these red lines that are uh, ephemeral at best, Why don't we use the animal house, uh, the Delta saying of don't get mad, get even. So China's got vulnerabilities um, and asymmetrically so. Just last week they had that terrible explosion, right? They've been lying through their teeth about how many people got killed and how many wounded, a hundred. Yeah, right, it's probably at least 10,000. Why not look at the opportunities that our cyber skills have to make sure that truth, facts, and reality are actually made available to the Chinese public? I wonder if that would get the Chinese government's attention on that particular thing, which might make them a little bit more amenable to having conversations about the issues that we're sensitive about. So is that something that we should be considering? Stop whining, stop wringing our hands, and stop screaming like little girls, and actually go out and do something that would get their attention and bring them to a table to have some serious conversations.
1: That's one of the things I would have on my list, by the way, Randy. Um, It is not the first time the US would have done that either in terms of not in the cyber, not on the OPM case, but we have used information that we know that, like I said before, you know, you've got to know what they're vulnerable and what's going to hurt them. And it's not always go to war, and it's not always um, expelling people. It could be disclosing to the world things that they're doing internal to their own very country. You know, like repressing certain regimes. In a lot of cases in, in, during the Cold War, the, that element was always on the table. I, For the one example I gave you um, on the Operation uh, Foot by the British, they actually had that on the table with respect to the USSR. They knew information about the repressive nature of things going on, and they were, thought, this is the way that we kind of get them to stop doing their intelligence operations in London and in other places in the UK. That actually was, they decided not to um, actually offer that and um, the assessment and the conversations that went back and forth on the officials was because they made a decision, they thought if they did that, that would tick them off enough that the USSR would then retaliate and arrest um, more of the the British officers, right? By the way, they actually did end up uh, expelling about 18 but 18 British personnel from the USSR. But that was nothing compared to the 105 that the UK got out, uh, um, the the USSR guys out. And and the results of that operation, it was very clear that this had a negative, long-term negative impact for the Soviet Union's intelligence operations in Britain. Very effective, right? So we can be very smart. The US has done things like that in the past. That list, I think, I mean, I would put it on the list. And I would, team, you know, red team that as an option because there will be, there could be consequences depending on who you're doing it to, what's going on at that point in time with your relationship with them, but yeah, certainly if we have information that would hurt them if it were to be disclosed, then we should actually let them know that. And, and, and that's what
3: I, and, and this red teaming that, because you, you'd, you'd made the, the screaming girls analogy there, the, um, I don't have kids, I'll leave it to you those that do, if that's accurate or not. The, um, but a lot of times when I, I'm afraid about this play, that, to take that playground and add it a little bit farther, because a lot of times I hear this, they did something we don't like, hit them. Or we did, you know, US did something you don't like, hit them. And, and, it's, and I know that's not what you're proposing, but a lot of times when I, when I hear this in this town, it's coming up with a, you hit me, I hit you. And, and we need to start thinking, um, as I know you did during your time at State Department, two moves down, three moves down, five moves down, 10 moves down. If we do this, what are they likely to do? How is it gonna be perceived, because this isn't just a closed game between us and them. Um, How is this gonna affect the other players? What's gonna happen if they then re-raise? And we've gotta be ready if they re-raise. If they say, all right, well, we're gonna gonna dox you guys. We got all these records, we're gonna put the first 100,000 of these records from OPM on the internet. Um, like what happened to Sony and see how you like that. Um, And uh, you know, let's compare with what you told the SF86 with what we see in the Ashley Madison database. Um, And so um, I'm... Do you anticipate a
6: lot of crossover there?
3: I'm sorry? Do you anticipate a lot of crossover? (laughs) The (laughs)
2: news says there is a lot of crossover Um,
3: (laughs) there, yes. uh, And and so I'm just concerned about that, that we think about this escalation path of how this is gonna play a a couple of moves down. Because especially when it's coming to China and the access to their population to outside information, if they see a concerted US effort, that starts getting them into regime survival mode of they're trying to overthrow, or it might do that. It might not, I'm not, I'm not enough of a Chinese expert. And so I think as long as we're red teaming this and we're playing it through the long game, And this is what I thought we were doing with the indictment of the PLA officers. I thought, oh, just wait, this is just the first thing. Wait till you see what they do, next,
2: you know. And and I thought there was gonna be a long game being played. So I think the point to take away on this is that the second or third thing out of that might not be something that would be made public. And if that kind of operation you're talking about was ongoing, the U.S. wouldn't stand up and say, oh and by the way, we just did this information operation inside China, it's great, they're really (laughs) pissed at us, right? That wouldn't be how you'd get escalation dominance. So I think those things probably are ongoing and they probably are happening. There are a lot of people working on that. I think the last thing I would say on your point about how devastating, (laughs) how not devastating it is, I think it's bad. It's bad that we lost this information. It's not devastating. The reason it's not devastating is we know about it, right? If they were (laughs) able to get this data out, and 10 years from now we were going, God, why do they seem to know everything about everybody who works in the US government? How were they able to roll up our entire intelligence network in China? There's gotta be a mole somewhere, and we never knew that, that would be devastating. That would give them an information advantage for a decade. Because we've discovered that, we, that we've done it, we're taking measures to be able to put this back <laughs> in the box. Yeah, it may mean, if it is actually possible to figure out who CIA officers are by looking at this data, that a lot of people are going to end up riding desks in Langley who are going to have great field careers. And that's going to suck. Mm. But we're going to be able to overcome it. We're going to possibly even be able to use it to our advantage. Right, this is the wilderness of mirrors. It's a very interesting place, and you can't assume that because they've got this data, we're going to be lost in the game of espionage for generations. Are we to
0: use that to our advantage? It's classified.
2: Mm. <laughs> well, but can you imagine how many, I mean, you can for that some scenarios, right? <laughs> Just can out you of imagine? your head, right? Oh, gee, they think these people are spies. Ah, we'll use these people. They'll never see them coming, right? You can come up with scenarios, and they're very. Devious people whose job it is to figure out how to spy on china i 'm convinced they 're not going to go home and never come back to work
1: <laughs> so so first on that, I do th- I think you give a lot of credit to um, the intelligence community's ability to minimize that damage. I, I think it 's going to be a while before we get our arms around how we could actually minimize the damage we don 't know right now what they can do with what they have i 'm not even sure that we know what they have yet, right so I'm more in the camp that it's gonna take us a while even just to figure out what they have, never mind how they'll be able to effectively use it. But it's so I'm take... more in the this really sucks category that it's gone. Um, now on the retaliation, we've heard kind of this mm. concern. Okay, if we do something, if we raise the bar, it's gonna be tit for tat and we're gonna ha- be hurt back. Yes, you always have to contemplate that mm, next right. hit, right? That's why I, I, you think the long-term red team, however, any. Any operation or policy decision that would be made, you would want to make sure that you keep something else in your pocket. That, for instance, just an example, not that I'm always thinking about expelling people from the country, yeah, um, but it's kind of that I, I emphasize it because it's a low level, unfriendly, but not, you know way out there kind of response. So I think most people can kind of stomach that for at least discussion purposes. But when you expel like 105 people from your country, right? that's massive. But you never do that without having something else on them. right? Because you need to let them know, take this serious. We're not negotiating. This is an expulsion. And by the way, we have something else that we can actually release if you think about retaliating on this. And that is typically how in, it's not just intelligence services mm. of, of dirty business. That was heads of state. right? Whether, whatever it is you have. Maybe you have other people you could kick out. right? Or it's some information you could make dis, um, public. So you can go to them privately and disclose that information and say, we know this. We may disclose this. But we're choosing not to make it public. Here's what we want you to do. And we won't make it public. And then you just have to be comfortable not making it public. So you first have to decide, what is your objective? If the policymakers say, no, it's very important to make this public, whether it's because of the dissidents, we need to give power to the human rights advocates, whatever, then you need to probably make it public. But if they decide, no, we, but we use it as a tool to get what we want and to kind of give them a message, do not retaliate, because we have more. We have more on you. Right? So I I would put it, I mean, I'd put it on the list. And I would kind of play it out as all the options should be. Other questions? <laughs> yes, sir.
5: Uh, Ken Meyerker World ducks How does uh, hardwired uh, backdoors fit into this discussion? Rob, I'm not
2: going to answer that. No, I'm not going to talk about that. I mean,
3: huge. broad range of capabilities. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's one of the things that there is. One of the reasons when we when I first started getting into this field in, in the '90s, there was a concern that everybody can do this, that this is really low, that two kids in their basement can take down the United States, that, and the rest. And, and we've really learned over over the um, over the years of what the difference in the capability that a real nation state can bring, and that the range of 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 what a nation state that can bribe people can do, black bad jobs that can. Do capability development, find zero days, do intelligence, do battle damage assessment, and put that all together in a big picture, like the U.S. is able to do, like Russia is able to do, like China is able to do, like a few other countries are able to do. Um, and so, it's interesting as you see some of these hacks. Um, the more dangerous, the more difficult, and the more tools they put in. For example, Stuxnet. You know, it takes away the number of folks that, that are able to play in. You know that we're able to pull off this kind of capability. And um, the more that we're able to see, the, as we are, exp- that's less true the more that we're broadening our vulnerability, the more that we're doing internet of things and the rest. Where the more that we increase our dependence and the more that we connect to the internet, the lower and lower that we allow other adversaries to, to deal themselves into the game. Um, when I said this isn't a closed, this isn't a closed, you know, this isn't just us in China, all of the stuff we're talking about is in the single, probably the single most transformative technology in the last 600 years, it's the internet. You know, it's probably the most transformative thing since Gutenberg, and so um, it's playing on a really important game. We're out, uh, some of us in the room here, we're out in DEF CON and Black Hat, the hacker conferences out in Las Vegas. And they have had a running theme for the last couple of years, which they call NSA toolset. So the hackers look at what um, the Snowden revelations were of what NSA can do. And they say, let's recreate that and make it so simple that a 10-year-old can copy this advanced NSA capability. Um, and so you, know, uh, you, you brought up one of these specific, connect, uh, specific areas. Um, but there's a lot more of these coming out and the more that it's not just the nations that are getting involved in this. Um, the non-states see, are doing what they're doing on their own, but in addition, they see what the nation states are doing. I mean, the hackers say, why should, why should it only be the nation states that can do this kind? You know, I mean, it, this kind of capability shouldn't be, only be in the hands of governments. It should be in the hands of everybody. It can't just be trusted to governments. And unless we do this, we won't see the security improved. So it gets,
6: it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I work in Please. IT security. Oh, sorry, i Thank you. So I work in IT security. We have been targeted, like my company, my employer has been targeted by cyber espionage efforts. I think I personally have as well. So I like the idea. It feels good to be like, okay, this is how we're going to respond against them. But also coming from it from that side, What I can't help but find a little distressing is so much of the discussion seems focused on how do we retaliate against them. The goal is then to somehow make China or Russia or France or some other country behave in a way in response to our behavior when what it seems to me like I guess the most immediate step should be is to change our own domestic policies. I mean, that's a skill set. It's easy to say we will all become more secure. It's harder to actually make, like, large government agencies that secure. But when you read things like how OPM was so easily compromisable, how they got owned, it just, it hurts. And these are things that can be avoided. But I don't see, maybe it's just not as publicly discussed because it's not as sexy. But I don't see that really being much of a huge discussion. Like, how do we reform our federal security policy? and that just seems to me like that would just go so much further than how do we get China to start behaving. So where's the self blame? <laughs> I think we skipped over it cuz
1: I think everyone here on the state, yeah. we agree with that and we have I, I'm sure we have a number of ideas. They may actually differ as to how to fix it, but we just didn't focus on it. But absolutely yes. Some may say that's why you need to fire significant number of people. That's why uh, you need to change the culture, that even if you're at the Department of Agriculture, uh, you need to understand securing data, right? You need to have a security-minded person running every single organization or at the top level, even if you have nothing to do with national security secrets. Unfortunately, most of these people do not. They don't think of security, mm-hmm. right? And that's what they basically said, OPM director didn't think of security. Are, are you nuts, right, really? So you cannot have, People, you got to get the right people in, the right culture instilled in every single government system, government agency, mm-hmm. but also the private companies as well. But yeah, I think that's an obvious like, yes, we want. We would, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to disagree agree. with
2: something that Jay said earlier, right? He said sure. that he thought the uh, DDoS attacks against the banks <laughs> <laughs> deserved a, a, some sort of strategic response allegedly carried out by Iran. And my answer to that was, wait. We made this problem go away by sending a couple million dollars in contracts with companies like Akamai and Cloudflare that provide services that can deal with this problem. That was probably a better use of US dollars than escalating into a conflict with Iran over a DDoS attack. Right. And you look at it at the end of the day and you say, "Wait, you know, the banks all by the way wanted the US government to hit them back and hit them hard." Of course. But the next quarter when they filed their 10K reports, not one of them listed it as causing a material breach to their company. No effect on stock price, no effect on earnings. So from that perspective, yeah, before we decide, hey, we've gotta destabilize relationships, enter into conflicts and escalate, we probably need to invest a little more in cybersecurity Mm -hmm. because guess what? These systems are actually worth it. We get so much value out of being able to access our SF-86's online that they're worth protecting. It was, Especially
3: having done both government, military, private sector, it was always frustrating me to always hear the litany in DC of, oh, this is a private sector problem, it's a private sector problem. And I worked for Goldman Sachs. I saw what good defenses were, and then I saw that not happen. I mean, Snowden I don't think would have happened if he was at a bank. Um, And yet that guy is still, I mean, the guy that let that happen is still renowned as a cybersecurity expert. Um, And he hadn't, after Manning, they could have done protections. So the next OPMs that are going to happen, the Department of Education has information on student loans. They've got gobs of information because they backstop a lot of student loans. Um, I'll bet their security is an OPM par. Um, Department of Agriculture, I believe, handles um, farm loans and similar information. I'll bet theirs is below OPM. I don't know these, I'm sorry to slur these agencies. VA, we've seen the problems at the Veterans um, Affairs Administration. Don't they have a here
0: Cybersecurity because it's all paper?
3: Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's Um, one option. And uh, I mean, so we've got lots of other places where this can hit that are not, that are seen as IT security backwaters. Um, that are not at the forefront. We say, why would we care what happens to the Department of Education they're not the Joint Chiefs of Staff? So we've got more of these that are that are waiting, that are waiting for us.
0: On that cheery note, uh, I think we actually need to <laughs> wrap up so that we can uh, sort of convene afterwards. But obviously, please feel free to continue to stay around and engage and with the panelists as well. So thank you so much for coming. And thank
3: you to
4: the panelists, what a great time.
3: And uh, between-